Hello and welcome to this week's FT Advisor podcast. We'll be talking about private assets investing today. My name is Ema jackson Obot, and I'm Deputy Features Editor at FT Advisor. In recent months, the conversation around private assets investing in private markets has grown. Regulation is also making this much easier for investors to access these types of assets. Private assets t- is typically a very broad term and comprises anything from private equity, private debt to real estate. Amid all the growing conversations about it, a study recently came out by a global consulting firm, Chiruli Associates, which found that nearly half of the private banks and wealth managements indicated that a lack of liquidity, high fees and clients' risk aversions were the top concerns preventing them from increasing private investments within their clients' portfolios. The democratisation of private assets seems to face several challenges, but are there ways to address these? And what should investors' approach be to this? Here to talk about all of this are Nick Hyde, Investment Manager at Wealth Club, and James Lowe, Sales Director and Private Assets at Schroeder's. But hello to both of you. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Maybe, Nick, I'll start with you. Um, in terms of the concerns I've raised or I've just mentioned, how valid are they? Um, I think there's a degree of fairness to them. Private markets are less liquid. They do tend to be more expensive and they are more risky. But then you could say pretty much the same thing about smaller companies or emerging markets. Uh, it's all kind of a scale, really. Um, and what it's about, it shouldn't prevent investors from investing in those assets. Um, it, most investors don't need 100% liquidity on 100% of their portfolio 100% of the time. Um, so actually, liquidity isn't a massive concern as long as it's a small part of your overall portfolio. Um, as I said, they are more expensive, but then private assets take more work. So if you're running a conventional listed equity portfolio, you can scale that up infinitely, um, quite efficiently, because you can always just buy more shares of, say, Diageo if you're doing large cap investing. With private equity, private venture capital even more so, but also private real estate, private infrastructure, it's just much more difficult to scale those things up quickly. Every new deal requires a whole new batch of new diligence. So it's just more expensive to run it private asset portfolio. Um, And then risk. Um, I think if you've got a broad diversified portfolio, you will have some less risky assets and some more risky assets. Um, Private markets just sit on that spectrum um, in the same way that any other investment would. And what about you, um, James? What what do you do you concur with um, Nick there? Yeah, I agree with a lot of the comments that, that Nick's just made there. I think they are valid concerns and they're they're concerns that have been traditionally barriers to entry for many private wealth clients investing in private markets over over many years um previous i think um one thing to say is you've got to, it's you've got to be a bit careful with with those risks and, and data around which geography you're looking at so for instance in the uk market uh, we've got a very established uk investment trust market which actually has around 100 billion sterling of of assets that's been raised for private market vehicles already so there's already lots of options there for private wealth and retail um, clients to to get involved with different types of private asset classes some of the ones that nick has has already just described are some of the risks of um i think more broadly though if you're looking globally um if you look at some of the stats around this the the average retail investor even if they have had access to private markets in the UK through investment trusts, still are very underweight private markets in their portfolio. So, I mean, the latest data we've seen is, is the average sort of 
retail investor allocations to private markets is about three to five percent of their total portfolio. And if you look at that in the context versus institutional counterparts, um, a lot of those are closer to 20, 30, even higher in some cases in the endowments of the family office market. So so what we have here is is a really exciting and large opportunity for for retail private wealth and advisors to to scale up um, private market allocations to, to get closer to to some of the institutional counterparts that have benefit, benefited from a lot of the, the, the positives that you get out of private market investment. And thanks, James. And touching on something you, you spoke of there in terms of looking at the geography and being clear on, on that, you know, when um, trying to understand how private markets um, or private assets investing is evolving, maybe we can scale it back a little bit. Can you just maybe just give us a brief breakdown on when we when we talk about private markets or, or sorry, private assets or investments, what type of assets are we referring to and how do we how do investors gain access to these types of investments? Yeah, so so maybe just taking a slight step back to look at where we've come from and where we've got to now. So if you mm. look um, back to sort of the early 2000s, private markets, I think it's fair to say, were still relatively in their infancy. Um, that the total market size at the end of sort of the two early 2000s was around sub $1 trillion in size globally. I mean, what we've seen through the next couple of decades is a huge growth. Um, in AUM within the private markets to now where we're over $10 trillion in market size. Um, where's that come from? Um, so it, it's been across all markets, really. So private equity is still two thirds um, of the total AUM of the private markets. And and as, as Nick has sort of described, that can, that can vary from the very early stage pre-revenue venture type companies where you're taking on a higher degree of risk all the way through growth investing rounds in private equity, but to the very, very large private buyout companies that are profitable market leaders in their area, just haven't, are still under private ownership and haven't gone public. So that, that's private equity and it makes up about two thirds of the market. Um, you've also then seen a huge growth in recent years of the more alternative income areas of the market. So that was when investors post the financial crisis were looking for yield. So we've seen a big increase in the amount of investment into infrastructure and private debt type vehicles that can provide both growth and and income that investors have been looking for. And there's also real estate as well, which is which obviously has an ability to provide investors re return across the spectrum of income and growth um, across commercial and residential and other alternative asset classes. So, so I think what I'm saying there is there is a there's been a huge growth in the market. We're now in a highly sophisticated, highly diverse ecosystem, private markets with a huge range of investment options um, that are available to investors. And I think what's really exciting about the concept of the retailization and democratization of private markets is that we're just going to see more access points going forward to this market from from a divert, more diverse selection of investors. So it seems like things are being put in place to make it easier for investors to to um, access these types of assets and make it, you know, part of their of their portfolio. Um, Nick, how should advisors and investors approach investing in private assets? Um, so I think there's well, traditionally private assets have been structured as a, an LP fund um, where you commit some capital up front. And then it gets called over a period of, say, five years. It's invested for another five years and you get your money back at the end. That structure has never really worked for retail investors. Um, first of all, you have to commit quite large sums, might be £100,000 up front, um, which obviously limits your 
number of people that can invest, but also means that you have to get phone calls over five years where someone might ask you for 20 grand, um, which, which is quite a lot of money to fork out with five days notice. Um, and that's been a really barrier to entry. Um, but more recently, that's changed quite a lot. James has already mentioned investment trusts, um, which have been around for some time, which are stock market listed companies investing in um, investing in private markets funds, uh, private market investments or funds. But more recently, we've seen a rise of semi-liquid structures. The LTAF in the UK, um, there are sort of international national, international variants like um, CCAVs, ICAVs, Quakes, um, with weird and wonderful names. But what these basically do um, is that they make it much, much more easy to invest in private assets uh, and have some sort of liquidity. So you invest in the fund on day one, that fund will have a pool of assets. You get exposure to that whole pool of assets on day one, rather than having to sit it in cash waiting for it to be invested. Um, and then you can, there's an option to sell that, or invest on a monthly basis or sell it on a monthly basis. Now, there are limits on that. Liquidity is not 100% guaranteed. Often the fund will only allow 5% of it to be redeemed in any quarter. Um, there are limits, but compared to traditional private asset investments, these are much, much more user-friendly. Um, and really, I think if you're looking at private assets for a client, semi-liquid structures like the LTAF should be front of mind. Did you want to add to that, um, James? See you nodding. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of the points Nick has just made. And and I think what, what I would just add to that is at, at Schroeder's Capital, which is the private markets arm of, of Schroeder's um, group, um, we, what we're really looking to try to do is to provide private asset access across a range of structures. So one of the structures that is sort of helping provide greater access to, to new investor types is the Evergreen Semi-Liquid Fund, as Nick said. Um, we think that's a great new structure. Um, there's also in the UK regulation that's getting behind that. So the long-term asset fund regime is creating a UK authorized open-ended semi-liquid fund, which is which is now gonna be more easily accessed by um, particularly advisors and private wealth clients. Um, but we also do, um, as I said at the start, um, think there is a, a really strong place in the market for other structures. So um, retail investors, private wealth advisors can, can very easily buy shares within the investment trust market and there's some great companies that can be accessed there um so i think it's, it's not really a, a question of either or here it's really a case that we have a broadening of options um for consumers and we think that's really really positive um going forwards because it means that advisors and discretionary wealth managers will be able to better match their consumer sort of preferences, so their own client preferences in terms of liquidity, risk return profile, investment objectives to a structure that sort of close, more closely matches that preference. Um, so having a, a broader selection of, of options for consumers is, is really positive. Okay, great. Thanks for that, um, James. I was going to ask you as well, is, I mean, to touch on that, is there a wrong or right time to invest in private assets and what type of investor do they suit? We're in a high inflation environment at the minute, although, you know, today um, that we're recording this uh, podcast, we did get some slightly positive news about inflation. Does it matter? I mean, if there are different routes into private assets, would, does that mean that certain vehicles will do better in inflation in a high inflationary market and others will not or if yeah if you can maybe i think i mean it, there's there's relative pros and cons mm -hmm. of each structure 
So, I mean, um, you could make the argument that right now with investment trusts at big discounts, that that's quite an attractive area of the market to look at. Um, the other side of that is that if you'd have been holding an investment trust during the, the sell-off and the discounts widening, you would have lost a lot of money. And on the other side of that, you have semi-liquid funds that get priced at NAV rather than the market price that would have been more stable through a period of volatility. So so it's, it's not that there's a, a, again, going back to the point, it's not there's a better structure, it's that each of the structures have their relative of benefits and and risks and and so when advisors and wealth managers are thinking about allocating to these structures and which ones correct for their client they really need to have a think about what they're trying to achieve in terms of portfolio construction um so and i think in, in terms of going to your point on inflation i mean that there's lots of different asset classes that can be accessed within each of these different structures some of which are, are going to be um particularly positive within inflationary periods so so yeah, it, there's lots of options in private markets to to take advantage of of a higher inflation environment. Thanks for that, James. Um, Nick, I was going to ask you, looking at the investor, I mean, how much risk is too much when it comes to investing in private assets? I mean, we talk about the makeup of an investment portfolio where people, some people use are using increasingly so using these types of assets increasingly so to diversify their portfolio. But how much risk is can be considered too much? It's a difficult one to make a sort of hard and fast rule on. Um, but I think the key thing to consider is lots of private asset investments, with the exception of investment trusts, um, tie your money up for a long period of time, or at least you're not guaranteed to be able to get it back when you want to. So really, it's about that portion of your assets that it can be invested for five to 10 years and, and is going to stay invested regardless of what happens with the market. Um, and there's a there's a so old market saying about it's time in the market, not timing the market that, that counts. So really your goal is to just sit in a private asset fund for an extended period of time and benefit from the long-term outperformance that private assets have, have given investors. So what you want is a pool of investments that has that option. I think the other thing about private assets is that you get a real range of different assets in that category. It's such a broad spectrum. You've got everything from real estate investments through to infrastructure, which are relatively lower risk, uh, and then all the way through to venture capital, or investing in, in very young companies. Obviously, there's a huge range within that. Um, the government recently came out and suggested that pension funds should look at maybe 5% into non-listed companies. Um, that's possibly not a bad place to start, but it does depend entirely on individual risk appetite. Yeah, thanks for that, um, Nick. I mean, that takes me to my next question, talking about um, LTAFs, or long-term asset funds, um, another acronym to remember in the industry. Uh, so, um, I mean, originally they were designed, as you said, to just allow D2C pension funds and sophisticated high net worth and professional investors to invest in them. Um, but the latest policy of, um, the latest policy from last, policy statement, sorry, from end of last month allows units in an LTAF to be recategorized as a restricted mass market investment. So it meaning restricted retail investors could put up up to 10% of their investable assets into an LTAF. So I mean, how is this just going to change the um, investment dynamic or invest, investing dynamic? Um, James, I'll come to you first. Yeah, I guess that the, the first thing to say is that we think that this is a really good outcome um, with the move from NMPI to RMMI. Um, we, we were very close to the, the FCA and, and the Treasury during the consultation. Um, we consulted 
um, as part of the industry consultation and and our, our sort of clear view was that that was going to be a requirement that was needed um, to, to try and um, get LTAFs to be launched because there hadn't been any launched um, before the start of this year and, and also to provide access to a broader group of clients and we, we think it's right that they've done, done that uh, and so we're really positive on that. In terms of what what it actually actually means in practice is, I mean, so we had done a, a lot of work with with the advice and the, and the wealth management industry um, ahead of the the policy announcement just to explain what LTAFs were, because um, because I think there's there's a lot of sort of upskilling education that is required there for a new structure. To be quite honest, and and that's something that that the market is is now starting to do work on. Um, but there had been a lot of difficulty because these products were initially sophisticated products um, with the wealth management community, community um, thinking about allocating to them. Because ultimately, if you want to buy a sophisticated product for a client, um, you have to go through a process of opting them up. Um, and that has all sorts of complications. It's, well, one, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of administration. Two, um, you've got to be able to demonstrate why you've done that to the FCA. Um, and so it, it just was going to be it, without the move to RMMI, it was going to become quite difficult to to distribute um, these products into a broader selection group of, of clients such as advisors and discretionary wealth managers. So so what this move does is is really important. It makes it easier now um, for advised and discretionary wealth managers to, to get involved with LTAFs going forwards. Um, there is also, as you say, as part of the RMMI designation, this ability for restricted um, retail investors to to purchase LTAFs. I think um, it's quite early days on this and it still sort of remains to be seen how that's going to play out. Um, but I think we just need, we need to see sort of um, how that how that works. Um, and it's obviously going to be, be done with great care um, to make sure that investors really understand the risks um, that are inherent in private markets and the illiquidity involved with LTAFs uh, before they make any purchasing decisions. So, so it's going to be really important we get that right as an industry. Thanks for that, James. Um, Nick, what are your thoughts? Uh, I absolutely agree. I, I think that it's a great development for the industry um, and not just for the industry, but for younger companies looking for investment, larger private companies in the UK looking for investment and, and investors. Um, ultimately, if you're, uh, given that there are, have historically been much better returns available in private assets than, than in large assets, uh, than in public assets, sorry, then anything that allows investors to access those um, is a real positive. As James said, I think the one thing that people need to bear in mind is that these aren't public assets, so they come with liquidity restrictions that that don't exist um, elsewhere. So assuming that the expansion is is handled well, and I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be, then, then I think this is only a positive. Well, that's great. Thank you. Um, today is the time to remember, 20, yeah, 19th. So we're like about 10 days away from, or just over 10 days away from consumer duty. Um, <laughs> and I'm just wondering how does um, this play into, you know, in terms of treating customers, how, what impact consumer duty will have also on the private um, assets investment world? Maybe I'll come to you, James, first of all. Yeah, I think much like with LTAS, it, it's still very early days, particularly in the advice market where we haven't actually seen the implementation of consumer duty yet. 
as you say, it's, it's not actually happened. So I think we we need to see how this plays out. I mean, from, from our perspective, I think one, one thing that was quite interesting to note, um, and this is uh, people who are listening to this and go and have a look at this, this themselves, is that in the LTAF policy um, statement, there is quite a lot of detail that the FCA has gone through there as to the how LTAF should be considered under um, consumer duty. So, so there's lots of good information in there as to how the FCA might start to think about... Um, people who are under consumer duty thinking about pro- using private assets within that that framework so as i say early days we need to see how it plays out but i, I think it, it should be something that that um we could we can work on as an industry and make sure we get right fab um nick what about you um closing thoughts on that um yeah i think in terms of consumer duty fundamentally i don't think there's any reason you would treat private assets different to public assets um, it's all about making sure that you've got the right products and that clients understand the risks in those products. Obviously, when it, when it comes to things like LTAFs, there are additional risks that don't exist in, in more conventional um, investments, but then there are also additional benefits. Um, and advisors have a, a bit of a balancing act to make between making sure that they are explaining the options that are available to their clients and picking the right ones for them, uh, while ensuring that yeah, clients are aware of those, those extra headwinds. Um, that's great. Um, actually, thank you so much. I mean, I suppose, like you said, it's um, consumer duty. We, we will then realise in the next few months what it really means. And, you know, I guess everyone will be sort of trying to work it out as, as they go along as well. You know, it's, there's a difference between knowing something and applying it in a practical sense, really. Um, it'll be interesting to see in the, in the, in the coming months. But um, thank you so much um, for joining me um, today, Nick. Uh, um, James, I mean, is there anything else you sort of you wanted to, to touch on around uh, private assets? You you know that you feel that we may not have covered in our in our chat today, or you guys think it's, it's covered everything? <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I, I think we've covered all the all the major major issues there. And but I, th- I think just one, I guess, final concluding comment for me is I think that um, we talk a lot about the democratization of private assets at the moment. It's sort of a co- commonly used word in the press, but I think. What we've got to keep in mind is we're really at the tip of the iceberg of this. This is something that has not happened yet. We're still working through this as an industry. Um, There's new products that are emerging that are providing greater access points to a a broader group of investors. The regulation, things like LTAFs in the UK, LTIFs in the the EU, and governments are getting behind this. You've just seen what the announcements are on, on private assets in Mansion House about freeing up extra supply of private capital for productive finance. Um, so we've got new product structures and regulation and government that's aligning to that. And then thirdly, I think the thing we haven't actually touched on is the requirement for new technology um, to actually also help facilitate this. Um, so we're going to, I think what we'll see and what we're already starting to see is, is disrupt, disruptive technologies and platforms coming to the market. They're going to make um, and facilitate easier access and simplify and automate a lot of the processes that are currently quite manual within private markets. I mean, Wealth Club are doing a great job of this already. I'll, I'll plug you there, Nick. Um, but I, th- I think that technology is going to be a really big driver um, for how private markets and particularly within the retail context look in, in the future. And the only thing yeah, I think I'd add to that is that um, I think there's still a bit of a perception that private markets are a kind of weird marginal part of of global finance. And the reality is that the vast majority of assets out there are held in private form rather than in public form. 
in the US, I think it's 15% of companies turning over more than $100 million a year are public. And the other, that means 85% of the largest companies in the US are private. And if you want to get any exposure to that kind of thing, you have to go through your private markets. Um, so I think you know, this is a huge opportunity. Um, and it's all about making sure that we give clients access to that in the most effective way for them. Thank you very much. Um, again, thanks again, Nick, and thanks, James, for um, joining me today. And thank you for listening. Please tune in next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.